I spoke to a, a song and he looked at me and said, oh, this gives me the chills. Welcome to The Founders. This is the podcast where we dig into the startup stories of some of the most exciting and innovative businesses by speaking to the founders themselves. I'm Alex. And I'm Joe. And in this episode, we're speaking to Heine Zachariasen. Heine is the co-founder of Avino, which is an app where you can find recommendations as well as rate and review wines. Uh, the app currently has over 60 million users. And fun fact, throughout the entire life of Avino up to now, they have raised a total of $221 million. Heine's held several high-level roles, including CTO for an antivirus software company and was CEO for an e-commerce brand and another software development company, all three of which he founded and exited with good success. Something we touched on in the podcast as well is that Heine now has his own YouTube channel called Raw Startup, has over a million views in total. Uh, on there, he creates quickfire videos full of advice for people like us, people like you who might be listening, who may be considering your own startup journey. Heine was also extremely passionate about passing on his knowledge to the next generation of founders. He shares a ton of tangible advice in this episode as well. So this is Heine Zachariasen. Enjoy. Heine, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So you've had a stacked CV even before founding Vivino in 2009. So I was hoping that you could give us a quick tour of your career up until this moment. Yeah, definitely. I, I Look, I, first of all, I have a little bit of a different background. You guys are in the UK and uh, you think that the UK would stop at the Shetlands Islands or something like that. But I'm from this uh, very, very small place called the Faroe Islands, which is in the middle of the North Atlantic. So so between Norway and Iceland and sort of north of the Shetlands. So it's a little bit of a different background and moved to Denmark uh, when I was in my early 20s. I've, I've just always enjoyed building. I think that's always been my thing. And I think what might also be true for a lot of founders is that we don't really fit in anywhere. So you're going to build your own stuff. Otherwise, you know, where are we going to put you? So in general, in my career, I think right now it looks like there might be a lot. But honestly, I really believe in one thing at a time when it comes to if you're a founder of a business, you should do one thing at a time and just double, double down on that. So I really like to be more a serial founder than a parallel founder. Uh, right now, I'm in sort of a process where I'm 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 a lead the vino. I'm a really quite a big shareholder and on the board. And about a day to day basis, I'm doing less and less. And so I'm doing shopping around a little bit. Um, and I think over the over the years, I've also figured out I probably can do multiple things um, at the same time. It's a different thing because a lot of founders like to be obsessed. I am definitely an obsessive person. And if you're an investor in a company, you don't want to get obsessive and go into every detail. You have to keep a distance. As a founder, it's amazing. So uh, so learning something new all the time, is it? So you're clearly a very motivated person that's had a lot of success across multiple businesses. Where do you find this entrepreneurial drive or this desire to to keep pushing on new businesses? Yeah, I, yeah, really, it is it is a good question. Um, and I I'm honestly not sure where it comes from uh, we do we we do talk a lot about it and uh, we were we're three brothers with similar similar age and then a little sister was a lot younger i think there is some uh, some competitiveness that comes from that and all obviously being the the smallest of them i really need to show them what i can do right so i think there is something in your bringing and when i talked to my brothers i think one of my brother once said like hi we we're programmed for success and I'm not sure exactly, we don't know exactly what that is, but it just means that we are ambitious. We we have something we want to show the world. And uh, 
I don't know. I think that's great, and I, I think it's a privilege. It could be a little bit tough at times, but but I um, I love that. I think it's fantastic. But I'm not totally sure where it comes from. And I admittedly know very little about the the Faroe Islands. But was there a, ever a feeling being there of being uh, slightly removed from the major cities where big business is, is operating? Did you ever get that sense and did it motivate you to make a move to Denmark? What was the sense like when you were growing up over there? Yeah, I think when, when you're a kid, you don't think about it at all. Like, this is my world. It doesn't matter where you grow up. I think this is just my world and it's it's great probably but obviously as you hit sort of the teenager years it's just like ah we maybe we need to get out of here or do something different so so in that sense yes and then just touching upon like being an outsider right we, we built something in the wine business which is really weird i mean you, know, you would expect the founder of Venus to come on here and tell a story about growing up in bordeaux and walking through the fields and through the vineyards with the grandfather right like i would go with my grandfather to look at some fishing boats or something like that. It was very, very unrelated to wine, which I think is quite interesting, right? So total outsider in the business as such. And did you always want to run your own companies? You touched a little bit on feeling like a, an outsider in some senses where you needed to define and create your own roles. But it, was that always something that you knew you wanted to do? Or did you go through a process of working for other people and then find that, you know, you, you felt that you could build something of your own? Yeah, I think I definitely wanted to be entrepreneurial always. I think the the fun for me was always to to build something that is just just generally build something and definitely with other people motivate other people to to be part of that. I love that part. I think it's fantastic. Um, but I don't mind working for other people as such. But but I guess over the years you figure out that you know you're probably somebody who can work with people obviously, but really needs to be somewhat the leader of the pack or somewhat setting the direction. Otherwise, it doesn't fly really well so and i mean when i was a kid obviously going back to you know what is my world i wanted to be a captain on a fishing boat right because that was my world so that was the leader of the pack so i'm gonna be a captain of fishing boat right that makes a lot of sense um so obviously you're the founder you're now a board member of avino as well um you did previously have roles as ceo for those listening who maybe aren't aware of Vivino or don't know what it is and what it does, could you just define Vivino for us and what it is it, it does? Definitely. Vivino is the world's largest wine app and wine community and really comes back from me walking to a supermarket many, many years ago and seeing like a wall of wine and, you know, growing up where I grew up, I didn't know what to buy. I really loved wine at the time, but I just saw this thing and there was all kinds of colorful labels, but but no sense of what's good and what's not so good. And it, to me, that was a little bit strange because every single movie has a rating. I mean, everything has a rating. A book, even a taxi driver has a rating, right? But we wanted to change that and say, wine should not be a mystery. Wine should be for everybody. There should be a rating on every single wine out there. And then we were so fortunate to uh, to come up with this idea of building a wine app where you can take a picture of every single wine label in the world and it will give you information about it. Uh, rating, taste, where can you buy it, and so on. So that's the the core of the of the offering. For people who enjoy wine, it sounds like there's so many answers packed into this one app. But before Vivino, there wasn't really a solution for this. In your own words, this market was unconquered. This online wine market. In order to get something like this off the ground, it must take a phenomenal amount of data work, change, finance. Where do you start when you want to introduce such a big change to one specific industry? Yeah. Or just faith, you know, just faith that you can do it because you don't, you don't have anything to begin with, right? Um, so it takes something 
which is so, so when we started there was no data there literally was no data so so i went down to the local stores and took a picture of every single wine la label that i could find we had a team actually in india that would put data on that so so we we started launching and we, we launched the app and they said hey you know uh, we think we recognize around 30 percent of wines out there it probably were more like 10 percent but uh, that's that was our claim at the time and then you just build and you grind and it's not easy because in this particular case, like 90% of the users are getting somewhat disappointed. So what we did there sort of to hack that a little bit was do a lot of handholding, do manual stuff. For example, when someone maxed our scandal label, we didn't know, it will go to our data team and they would put data on right away. We came back to the user and said, hey, we found the wine now. We looked at it. We think it's this wine. We might not have a rating at the time, but... It meant the user said, okay, at least they tried. I might want to try this again. Even though you have a little bit of a crappy experience, it's a little bit better than that because, hey, they, they looked at the thing I sent to them and so on. So they were pretty serious about it. Like, you have to hack your way to it. But there's no such thing as perfectionism when you, and this is something that really has been a part of my, my career too, is that you have to be strappy here. And if you want to build a perfect product, you're never, ever going to build what we built. And um, it's just like, what are you going to do? You're going to add 16 million labels in there. Where are you going to find them? So it'll take you five years just to do that. You will never find the funding for that. So you have to think, okay, what can we get out there now to get the ball rolling? And I also uh, often say, you don't have to have a good product, but you want to try and have the best product. So what that means is that there's no good product in this category. Well, if you can build the best one in the category, that even though it's crappy, you still have a shot. And how did it kind of work when there was very few reviews on wines? When you were one of the first few users that opened up the app and you were looking for your wine and maybe there was one guy who rated it five stars. I think wine can sometimes be subjective in terms of taste as food can be. One person can think something tastes great. One person thinks something doesn't. But I think now if I use the app, I can kind of rely on an average where if thousands of people have reviewed a bottle really well, I'm kind of thinking this is probably going to be a great bottle of wine. But initially when you've only had maybe two, three reviews, as you, as I'm sure you must have, how, how did you manage that or how did you get people coming back or incentivizing them to to contribute their own reviews yeah i yeah really important question because this is obviously you know, a little bit tricky right but knowing that we wanted to do this all the time this wasn't what we pitched in the early days so our slogan back then was never forget another wine right so you need to put your wine in here so you remember what you've had and so we used that slogan at the beginning knowing that okay that's at least something we can deliver right Here's this list of the wines you've tried. You'll have them all in the app and so on. There's not that much data. And then later, it's like, hey, we'll help you drink better wine and so on. So, so you have to hack that little, whatever little bit of feature you have, try and double down on that. Was that a strategic decision from the get-go or was that a pivot? So did you start the business knowing you wanted to have a platform where people were reviewing and recommending wines to each other um, and that was the end goal and you pre-planned to, first of all, create an app where people could save their wines, so hoping to build up a user base, or was it a pivot from one to the other? Yeah, I, I think it was all on the same line, sort of getting it done. I think it was just a part of the journey, honestly. The, the cool thing about if you have a product where you can do something where you get some initial payoff right away, some magic moment, and at the same time invest in the long term, it can become really sticky. So Vino has that, right? You get a 
a wow, a moment of sort of wow right away. You scan the phone, oh my, this is incredible. At the same time, we're building information about you. We now know that you like Cabernet Sauvignon and you don't like Chardonnay. So, so in that sense, that's really good if you, because the, the other products that we see are products where you have to invest a lot for a long time and then you don't do that and just disappear. So if you give some kind of wow moment already on, that's incredibly valuable. The other question I've got specifically on this topic is about how not, not how the app was perceived by the people who were initially using the app, but those in the industry, so um, wine connoisseurs or sommeliers, what was their initial impression? What, did they did they push back on it, or were they, did they welcome it with open arms? How did they perceive the app? I, I remember early on, I, I spoke to a, a song. This is very early. I told him about this thing, and he looked at me and said, oh, this gives me the chills. Uh, he did not like it, and he was very concerned that we were going to take away his job and all kinds of things. Um, Obviously, we don't. So, so no, they didn't like it. First of all, they think community rules are BS, right? We should only listen to experts. Um, but I think that has changed. We've really shown that community rules are fantastic. And I think they're better than experts, not biased at all, obviously. But I think if this is the best way to do Let me give you an example of what, why community reviews are so incredible. I mean, things you can do with scale is just wild, right? So if you look at the big reviewers out there, like Robert Parker or a Wine Spectator, these are these are the guys from the the old generation of of they would review around twenty thousand wines a year, right? So that's the capacity. That's quite a bit, right? But we get a hundred thousand reviews a day. So so the scale is just totally different. Obviously, they would never review all the wines that are available at Safeway and Tesco, where we would. Every single one is reviewed and has really good data. So. Yeah, so I really believe in, in those. And since then, like the smart songs, we work closely with them. They're amazing. And I would say to everyone, when you go to a restaurant with a song, use the song. Like, But the fact is that 99% of restaurants don't have a song, right? So then you need Vivino, obviously. We've spoken to different founders before, one of uh, which founded a plant-based meat company. And he's mentioned that there was uh, real trouble breaking into that industry, or there was some politics around breaking into that industry because they're effectively disrupting an existing market and there is a lot of money behind the meat market and they can make it difficult to break into and i don't know enough about the wine industry to understand if this was something that you came up against at all given the disruption that vivino would have caused in the sense of where wines were being recommended um, and which wines were being recommended or, or from, from what year or what vineyard or whatever it might be. Is that something that was in play or is it just completely different? Yeah, I, I think uh, th- these are important questions and it really comes back to your reliance on the industry. Do you Are you going to rely on the industry or not? And if you're going to rely on the industry, when are you going to do it? Do you need to rely on the industry from day one or after you have 60 million users or something like that, right? So... So we made a decision very early on that we we're not going to rely on the industry. We we're going to push this forward. Uh, we're not going to ask the industry to provide us with data. We're not going to ask them for anything. We're going to be there for the wine drinkers and build the product around that. Because going to bigger companies, asking for help or whatever when you're nobody, it's just rough. You end up spending so much time on it and you get very little out of it. Going to bigger companies, once you've built a product that has traction, it's totally different, right? So you end up spending a lot of time on it if you do it right on. If you can possibly do it later, it's much, much better. So 
So I think that would be my sort of normal recommendation on that. Uh, try and avoid having any reliance on, on, on anyone uh, because that's just a risk. I actually wanted to start picking your brain a little bit um, for some advice. Obviously, you dedicate quite a bit of your own time into advising startups um, through your YouTube channel, Raw Startup. And so seeing as, obviously, Vivino's an app, we'll, we'll start with that sort of remit. Um, in your experience, what do you believe the um, key mistakes are that people make when looking to create an app or they're in their starting phase of creating an app? Yeah, um, I think I have a, a... Look, there can be many things, but there's one thing that just nags me a little bit and it's something that I see a lot is that people just take too long to get out there. So too much time planning, designing, thinking. My philosophy and our philosophy has always been any time you spend where a user isn't using your product is time wasted. So everything is about getting your, your product in front of a user as quickly as possible because that's when you start learning. You can sit in a basement for 10 years and think about what people want, but when it hits a real user and real people, that's when you really start learning. So that is something I see a lot, and I really try and push people in that direction. Get it out there. Believe, like minimum viable product, obviously something we really, really believe in, but just get it out there. Get some real feedback. That's when you really start learning. Say we, someone listening to this podcast takes this advice, they take their idea and put it into an app, and they build it and launch it tomorrow. The first users that they get might be their friends and family. Uh, they'll get some feedback. They might make a new iteration. They might send it out again. Maybe this time they post it on Twitter or TikTok and they get some new users that they've never met in real life. This is still early days of this app. They've still maybe only got 10 to 100 users maximum. What is the turning point to then hitting exponential growth where you're hitting 1,000 new users, 10,000, 100,000? Obviously, you know, Vivino's got over 60 million users at this point. Is there a turning point or is there a clicking point where it all makes sense or how, how do you start to hit scale? Yeah, I think first talk about the family and friends and so on, you know, they're not very useful. Uh, they're <laughs> useful as family and friends, but they're not very useful when it comes to building uh, building products. Honestly, look, they, they will give you feedback and they will do that and probably positive because, not because they love the product, because they love you. And that's just different. So you really need to get this product in front of people that don't like you or at least a neutral, right? So they will give you proper feedback. And, and the likeness of your family actually needing what you're building is also very, very small. Um, so you really want to get the product in front of people that have this problem for real, and they will give you a truthful uh, feedback. So, so that's really, find the people that have this problem the most, and then work with those people, I think. Um, and when it comes to growth and scale, just, just to give you an idea, for Vino, this took just under two years uh, to release every single Friday back then. And we just released all the time, all the time, and did small iterations and improved. Listen to the usage, improve, listen to the usage, improve all the time. And, and, and I think this is another important message is that this is where most people fail. They do not keep going. And after, you know, after a few months, like it's just rough. And, and I want to give one piece of advice there too is also, that people set goals for them at this early stage. Hey, I want to have a thousand downloads on this on July 1st. And I advise against that. What you need to focus on is growth. It's really, really hard to focus on. Uh, again, this is when you start getting to that point. 
to set specific goals, but you just don't know. You don't know what the adaption, but but if you look and say, hey, we got 50 downloads this first month, then we got 75, then we got 100, then we got 200. That's much more satisfying than some goal that you, pardon my French, pulled out of your ass, right? And so, so I really like to look at growth and progress instead of setting some random goals that might make you depressed or even live in limit you. We can go both ways. It's a, yeah, I actually fully agree with that. It sounds a lot more like the the key to getting through those early stages is probably more persistence, taking as many lessons as you can from the persistence of, of putting out new iterations of your product. The question that I have next is sort of in line with this. If some people are uber ambitious from the get-go, they might pull together a team. They might lay out some costs that they believe that they have in order to get their product or uh, or app specifically um, off the ground. Uh, we've had quite a few conversations over the last episodes of the podcast where we probe around what it's like raising funds, how it's done. The the general MO that we've got from um, the feedback is that it's really stressful, can be quite difficult, um, but sometimes it's a necessary evil that they, uh, a lot of uh, founders have to do. And they've mentioned that a lot of it is um, down to you, what the investors can see in you and whether they believe in you. But in a lot of cases as well, whether you, your foundational information in your pitch deck stacks up, it's got to obviously hold up on its own right. The question I've got is, how do you make a killer pitch deck? Are there things that in your eyes have to be in there? And are there things that you've seen in some pitch decks that you wish people would leave out? So how much time we got here? No. Uh, <laughs> this, this, this is a definite video. Right? I've done multiple videos on this. I, I have one video where I just break down the pitch deck. I, I speak very fast for 20 minutes on every single slide that I think needs to be in the pitch deck. So uh, do check that out. And yes, there, there are certain things. Another thing I want to say too is that in the early stage, these things matter a lot. Like you say, hey, do they like me? Is the pitch deck good and so on? But as soon as you reach traction, that's where it's a different thing. Now it's really about is do you have the traction you need and so on. And I say to those people, when we closed the last round of like $150 million, people say, how the heck do you raise $150 million? Well, first of all, it, it, you don't start by doing that. It is step by step. And it's because that something has happened over the journey. So people say, oh, there is some value in that. So what I say to people also, it's much, it's much harder to build a product that's used by millions of people than it is to raise money. If you build that product that's used by millions of people, you will raise the money. And so, so that's some of the comfort at the latest days. But in the beginning, it is tricky. And uh, I mean, the one thing that we always talk about is is uh, is FOMO, like the fear of missing out, right? This is what drives investors. They like this is. You have to remember that money is just money. Meaning, of course, money is very important. But but hundred thousand dollars from this person or that person, that's the same hundred thousand dollars. Whereas your startup, there's only one of them. In creating some FOMO and fear of missing out and never ever uh, sort of challenging that. Every time you talk to an investor, you can never say, hey, no, it's fine. Let's wait a little bit. Of time. They look for any single, every single out to wait a little bit to invest. And what you really want to signal all the time, but in, in a subtle way, you can say, oh, we're closing Monday and it's not true. No, not that. It's more about, hey, we're building something amazing. This new feature that's coming right now. I mean, it's going to blow up for sure. And after that, like, who knows what's going to happen? Like, everybody's going to come. So not saying that this is your opportunity, but but like in subtle ways, do that. Not not aggressively. So so I think FOMO and understanding FOMO is incredibly important. 
And then the last question before I hand uh, back over to Alex is, um, and obviously don't name names here, we're not trying to call anyone out. Have there been any really bad pitch decks that you've seen and what were the things that made them really bad? First, yes. The question, have there been forgettable pitch decks out there? Yes. And that's why I probably forgot about most of them. Um, but but yes, I've just seen a lot of these. Um, I think one thing that when you when you're building something and you haven't really built anything yet, but you compare yourself to some big player out there and say, no, 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 we're much better. We're going to have all these things. Is that is true, but you don't have anything yet. So so that's like, come on. Well, you can't say that a win because you have all these things that these bigger players don't have yet because you have nothing yet. So focus on where you are and, and where you're going from here the next years. That makes a lot of sense. And then turning the spotlight back onto you and, and Vivino um, back in the early days, you you and your co-founder said that you, you didn't really know too much about wine when you were creating Vivino, which arguably allowed you to create an app for ordinary people, people who also didn't know a huge amount about wine, weren't connoisseurs or sommeliers or anything like that. But what we wanted to know is from an investor's point of view, how did that land when you pitched this idea of making the world's best wine app without knowing anything about the thing that the app was going to be for? Yeah, I know that's, that's, a, that's a really good question. And, and I have emails from investors that say, hey, Look, this is cool. We might like you some investor, but we like investors that come from industry and then build something for that industry, right? And honestly, that's not a stupid investor. Obviously, they made a big mistake in that particular case, but that does make sense. However, if you want to build an app for for a certain audience, it really helps that you're in that audience. And when we started Vivino, and actually when we launched the word was that there were 600 wine apps out there at the time. And a lot of those apps were uh, like smart wine experts saying to themselves, oh, we know why we should make a wine app. You know, you really shouldn't because you'll just build a wine app for other wine experts and you can sit there and you can say, oh, this tastes earthy and licorice whatever, right? People don't want to, most people don't want to do that. It's great that you want to do that, but that's not a big market. You want to build something for for the normal user, for the casual drinker. You have to think like the casual drinker, not like a sommelier, because then you'll build something for a sommelier. So very often the outsiders can really build something that's sort of different than the existing industry. I suppose it would be like me almost drawing up a map for someone of an area that I know really, really well, where I'm very likely to just assume that someone understands where certain things are or their relation to one another or... Whereas someone who doesn't know the area at all with the same job is much more likely to make sure that all these small details are in there uh, that that make sure that someone can actually get around that also doesn't know the area. So that makes a lot of sense. And when you're putting together your founding team, how important is the level of expertise relative to, say, things like drive and desire to to get the, the project done? Yeah, I, look, drive and, and there's someone that you can that it's going to push and stay on board and be loyal, all those things. I mean, that's just a requirement. If, if you don't have those things, uh, it's not going to happen. And, but obviously, you also need them to know what they're doing. But as a founder, it's a lot also about being resourceful and knowing how to learn and figuring things out, right? Uh, we are, you know, jack of all trades very often. We're, we're not sort of super experts in one thing. Uh, and I think that's what you need as a as a co-founder. Obviously, you need you know product expertise, you need some business expertise, and those things, and you need those things covered. Um, it's it's really hard to build 
Yeah. Look, a tech product, if you don't have anyone who has understands technology, that is that is true. You'd have to be able to code, but understanding product and those things is really quite important. And with Vivino, so you've built this huge platform and the technology that can allow for people to review their favorite wines. They understand it. I think when people um, mention Vivino, they, they know um, what it is. Are there any plans to, because obviously there are other categories of alcoholic beverage or even non-alcoholic beverage that you can buy where there is a huge number and there's a wall of them. For example, the the laws around the, the number of hectoliters of gin were lifted in what uh, 2000 and whenever it was, which led to this huge number of small batch gins coming to supermarkets. And it's almost uh, becoming a kind of similar situation as wine when you walk into a supermarket. There's just a wall of it and you have no idea. And the, all you can do is kind of try a different one every other week or so and so my question is you've you it seems like you have everything there to be able to move on to other categories if you wanted to would you stick to wine and is there a reason why you would do that or could you see there being plans to expand into other uh, niches yeah yeah i mean definitely a conversation we've had uh, more than once let's let's put it that way uh, because it's like it's pretty obvious that hey that would make a lot of sense and then people have suggested all kinds of products too but I mean, most likely you would stay within alcohol beverages. Um, it just makes more sense, has more similarities and so on. And and I tell you, we uh, we recently did a joint venture in China where we're uh, building Vivino for the Chinese market uh, with a few investors and a partner. And uh, it's fantastic. They built the, the app from scratch with our brand and our data. So it's super exciting project out there. Um, but in that market, we've decided that we're adding spirits too. So uh, especially uh, Baijiu is huge in China uh, and wine is relatively small, but the market is so big, so it's still big. But uh, like from a percentage point of view, Baijiu is the thing. And um, so in that market, we've decided to do that. And I think, you know, it's pretty likely we might might go in that direction. And I want to add to that, like you mentioned gin, I love gin. I love spirits too. And, and actually part of building a distillery up in my native Faroe Islands, the first craft distillery, we're going to have a whiskey distillery north of scotland i mean that's it's gonna be very different i promise you amazing can't wait to to try it i'd like to ask now about any defining moments in your career are there are there moments that or uh, well your career's been very long with multiple different uh, chapters to your story i suppose but are there throughout that career are there any memorable or defining moments that you feel that if that hadn't have happened you wouldn't be where you are today does it count to have a vino as a question on Jeopardy in the US? Is that a big deal or what? <laughs> it's a pretty big deal. <laughs> did they ask you about Did they let you know that was going to happen? No, no I, no, I didn't know. I didn't know. Suddenly it was just showing screenshots like we're on we're on Jeopardy, which is fun, right? So and like, so the, you, I guess you built something by there. And I'm not saying it's a defining moment. I think for me, one of the defining moments uh, was really raising our A round. Uh, I think for the people that have tried raising an A round, you know, it's a lot of money. You go from being some kind of startup kid uh, to being like a real thing. In our case, it was around 10 years ago, 2013. And we raised $10 million back then. At that point, you think like, holy crap, these guys really believe in us. Like we've we've built something here. It's interesting. But someone in, in London now says that we're going to put $10 million bet on you guys. You'd better fuck. Part. Can we say fuck on this? Yeah. You better yeah. fucking deliver, right? <laughs> so so I think for me, that was a defining moment. Like, okay, they really, really believe in us. So I think that was like, super exciting. 
on that, actually, when you have maybe your first successful raise, your first successful investment round, um, like you say, you've got all of this money from some investors, 10 million pounds might land and they're like, right, we need to deliver now. Like they're going to expect a lot of us like, yes, they believe in us, but we've got to deliver. Does it then feel weird that there's that much money available and you've got to go and spend it? Because obviously you take investment to go and spend it on, be it marketing or our staff or what have you. You've then got to go and spend a significant amount of money on a on a set trajectory. Was that a weird moment? And yeah, definitely. I, I have like a parallel story. And so I'm a sort of pretty mediocre poker player. Um, but um, one story I used to tell is that once when you play poker and you just won a big hand, when the next hand comes, you should really fold. But you should like, fuck yeah, I'm winning everything right now. You should just fold no matter how good the the, uh, the hand is. And I, I sort of believe in that too in this case. Like suddenly there's a lot of money in there. And you really have to be careful. You're, you're a little bit high on this and and you push. And, and honestly, we did. And I think a lot of people spend a little bit too much money when that happens. So be careful. Be super careful. Uh, be frugal all the way through. This money is going to... You, you easily get used to spending a lot of money. Uh, that goes for you and the entire organization. So so yeah, like a super weird moment. And and at the same time, I still remember like this was one of our rounds. I was just walking down the street and I opened the bank. I was like, holy shit, there's twenty five million dollars in here. And uh, and it's just like I almost cried and like, oh, this is huge. But at the same time, the pressure is like, damn, you gotta deliver. Um, which is which I don't have a problem with, but just be aware that's coming. Mm. And speaking of you've got to deliver, the next question I've actually got is, looking back, are there any defining moments where you've had defining mistakes or funniest mistakes, maybe things that you can look back at now and laugh? Yeah, I think I think I'll laugh. I'll say as a person, it's nothing I don't learn from my mistakes. I just try to make every mistake and every decision like a good decision and just move on. Um, and sometimes you realize I'm like, okay, this wasn't great, but let's just, we will just go in this direction. And I will say, look, this is more of a funny story than anything else. This is also related to uh, to investors. And I was um, I was meeting a new investor, and this was actually the guys that led our B round. So it was people from uh, LVMH, and I was meeting them at some club in London. I, I think it is it called Annabelle. It's like one of these clubs. Yeah, Annabelle. Annabelle. Yeah, yeah. Annabelle's, yeah exactly. I just, I just you know, I, and I was wearing whatever I was wearing, right? Uh, the jeans and a t-shirt and a jacket and so on. So I got there like three minutes before the meeting and they go up and say, hey, I'm meeting Mr. X here. And uh, and he looked at me and said, yeah, sir, you cannot get it going like this. What's wrong? Well, obviously you need to have a shirt on to get in here. And I thought, oh, crap, the meeting starts in five minutes, right? And then he walks around the counter and looks down at me like, like a kind of elephant, but sir, it's your shoes too. He's like, what the fuck? <laughs> and so... It was the shoes and it was the t-shirt, everything, right? And but these guys, you know, I told them I was going to be no, we might want to please this guy. So solution was they get what they call a Japanese jacket on, um, which is like a jacket, but it goes all the way up to the neck, so it just close, so you can't see if you have a shirt on or not. And, but that doesn't solve the shoe problem, right? So second solution is that we're sitting outside. So meeting this guy for the first time, I'm sitting outside in a Japanese jacket, but he loved it because he could smoke his cigars. So wasn't too bad and, and we did close the deal after all that's good i've had very similar experiences but it wasn't uh the, the stakes weren't quite so high it was just uh it was just a night out <laughs> but um when you were talking about uh raising the 10 million before and uh being a uh a little bit of a poker player i thought that 
that story was going to take a very different direction. I thought you were going to be like, got the 10 mil, Vegas, well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> got yeah. it on the table. <laughs> but what I wanted to ask was, overall, if you could speak directly to, to one of our listeners that was thinking about starting their own business or even has started their own business and is just looking for the, the next stage, what do you feel that the, the biggest lesson that you've learned to date is? Yeah, um, I've come down to there's one thing I'm good at, uh, which is, I don't know if I've learned it or not, but I've at least learned that that's important. And it, it really comes back to what we talked about before, and that's keep going. Um, so being able to just have the, the energies to go, 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 is really one of the most defining things when it comes to being a founder. And uh, that's definitely something that, uh, that I think is important. Another thing that I, I want to mention is you know, think big, start small. And people sometimes sort of mess that up. And say, oh, we got to think big. We got to think big, which is true. But at the same time, you got to start small, meaning it's great that you have this idea that you want to do this, but what are you going to do for the next six months? If you don't have that idea, you're not going to get to the big one. So I really like like using that one. And finally, on, on that, the, the general importance of trust. Look, we have, we have one life here on earth. And the world isn't as big as you, it is quite big, but you will meet the same people, you will meet the same investors, build trust over time. And and that just means that once you get like, not saying older, older, but even in your 30s and 40s, you will know people that trust you and like you and, and that you've helped and so on. And that's incredibly valuable when you do whatever you do that's going to be hard in your life. And on the point around um, maintaining a high level of energy, um, I think naturally whenever people start a business and perhaps this is why there's such a high percentage of new businesses that, that end up failing. But when you first start a business, there's a general excitement around the fact that it's yours and you're earning your own money and there's uh, a product or a service that you're offering and you're completely responsible for everything. And naturally with a lot of these businesses, unless it's sort of like a tech product or something, it's about the the long game and it's like a, it's a marathon rather than a sprint. And once that initial excitement around um, the fact that you've started your own business sort of fades away, how do you then maintain that level of energy? How do you achieve balance to make sure that you're not just gunning for the short term, but you can continue to do this for a, a long period of time? Yeah, I mean, that that is where the, and you said high energy, I, I do believe in that too, uh, but like stamina, you, you gotta keep going. Um, and obviously, you could have periods in your life where you go hard. I mean, go really hard. It could be you're closing around, something like that. But you can't keep going like that. You have to have a balance in your life, whatever that balance is. And and honestly, I'm not a role model in that. I really like to work a lot. Some people work differently. I enjoy working a lot in my own way. And I, but I also, you know, sleep well and get my exercise in and those things. Uh, but you have to find some balance that you can live with. Um, but but the the thing you talk about here when the excitement is over, there is a, there's a book I honestly didn't read all of it, but the conceptual idea of it, is, I think it's called the messy middle or something like that. And this is the thing that nobody ever talks about. We talk about starting my own business and then closing or or selling it or something huge, but nobody talks about the messy middle. And you have to get through that too. I think that's important. And you know you need a little stamina and you need some balance in your life. You can't be you can't be fighting different battles at that time, meaning uh, you're out eating well, you're not sleeping well, uh, your partner's about to leave you and so on. You can't do that. You're not going to get through it if you don't have those sort of ducks in order. 
Absolutely. And that brings me on to my final question before I hand back over to Joe for the last two. Um, that's a kind of great start to uh, to an answer to this question. But do you have any core principles for success that you follow within your own life? Um, I I don't think I have sort of I have some that I really believe in. Uh, I think one big one is just generally the leadership. The leadership is the root to all good and all bad in this world, and I've just become a stronger and stronger believer in that. And when it comes to building a startup. That is just so, so true. I mean, whatever you do at the top as the founder is going to trickle down through the entire organization. So, and that goes from building a startup to raising kids or whatever you do. So I really, really believe in leadership as being just a, an incredibly important factor. And when we looked at tragedy in our times, like the war in Ukraine, like what is that? That is horrible leadership from, from Putin, right? Like if it wasn't for him, this would not have happened. And so really believe that leadership has, has become sort of a principle that I just believe is is what leads to everything good and everything bad in life. If you could imagine that you were speaking directly to our audience, a lot of them might be uh, seeking investment right now. They might be even be it family or friends. They might be going to a VC, who knows. But if you were looking to invest in a new business, if there was one thing that you were to look for to make a decision, yes or no, what is that thing that you'd be looking for? Yeah, it, it is a difficult question because usually you need to check a few boxes. But in the early days, when when you try and raise money, it's all about the founder. Look, do I have the 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 faith that this person is going to go all the way? And uh, what what I, what I sometimes say to to founders is the best way to make sure you can raise money is to have done it before. Uh, but that's really hard when you're a first time founder, right? But it's something to think about that. Looking at and talking to the person, saying, "Hey, we're willing to go all the way here. We are going to do this. We're going to give this a full shot." Because when you raise early stage money, that's what you got. Like you have built something, um, and is the person like resourceful and, and can they figure out how to do this? So that that's something. In the early stage, it's all about the founder. And the last question I've got for you is is more actually about you. Obviously, throughout your career, you've got a very successful career uh, along this of of amazing work that you've done. But for you personally, who inspires you in business? Yeah, that, that's a good question because I, I, I'm sort of not a believer in in having like one star that I look at. And I, I've had so many incredible mentors in my life and uh, I've learned so much for so many people. I'll tell one story though, which I, I, it was a book I read very early. I think it was in the 90s. And it was, it was one of Richard Branson's uh, first books. I think it was Losing My Virginity, something like that. And, and the lesson I got out of that was really quite different than, than what you would expect. It was more about, it sounds like it's not a compliment for Richard Branson, but, but I sort of concluded when I read the book, it's more important to do things that every single time make the right decision. And I'm sorry, it was Sir Branson, Richard Branson, but I really read the book as like, holy shit, you don't always make fantastic decisions. Um, but, but what that gave me is like, don't try and go for perfection. Uh, there's always going to be a problem. There's always going to be a chance, a big chance of this failing, but you got to do it. And that's what he learned from me. And that is an incredibly important lesson for me. Yeah, I got a very similar impression when uh, I was watching the uh, documentary series that was made about him. And it was it was a very similar impression that I got that he was just, he just saw something that he believed was cool and believed he could he could change. 
and just went for it <laughs> regardless of and it didn't necessarily think seem like he thought everything all the way through but he was just like i think this would be cool to do uh, and he would just go for it so that was it was inspiring in that sense and in the real world you never can there's always going to be something go wrong you have to focus on you know you got to do this there's a chance it will fail you're never going to have all your bases covered you just got to go for it absolutely Heine, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. There was loads of really, really good advice in there for the listeners. Uh, I wanted to ask you, do you want to uh, mention where people can watch either more of your content around uh, startups and advice for startups um, and businesses? And also, uh, where can people get Vivina? Definitely. So, yeah, I should definitely go on YouTube and look for Raw Startup. I, I I try and help, you know, the next generation of founders with various uh, straightforward short advice that could be sort of very useful so i hope you enjoy that on on youtube and uh, the vino is available in both the app store and google play and if you do mind you should definitely do that too amazing thanks so much honey thank you it was a great pleasure thank you so much for listening to this episode of the founders if you liked the content in this podcast you can get new content from a new founder every week by following us on all podcast apps 